Welcome to episode 170 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. My dad has been going to paint night classes, you know, the one where everyone paints the same big picture, and that has spurred an interest in watercolors. Instead of collecting more of those big paintings, he's switched to making smaller works of art using watercolors and has figured out how to turn these paintings into greeting cards. Greeting cards were never really his thing, but I'm glad he has this new hobby because my kids are starting to learn the joy of getting mail. Do you remember how amazing it was as a kid to get a piece of mail with your name on it? Well, that's now happening more frequently, and it made me think about how we can recreate that special feeling when interacting with fellow adults. The good news is that you don't have to paint your own greeting cards to make this happen, although that would be pretty cool. I do this in tiny ways. For example, let's say that LinkedIn notifies me that a connection just got a new job. They make it super easy to engage that post with either a like or with an auto-generated message. Congrats on your new job. Sure, I could just do one of those simple and quick actions, but I take a few extra seconds to share a message via text, email, Facebook private message, or LinkedIn messages. Congrats on your new job. They're lucky to have you. When you're less busy, I'd love to catch up. When I see a Facebook friend's birthday is today, I send them a Facebook private message rather than writing on their wall, or if they're a close friend, I send a text. Sure, I could just be one of the dozens or hundreds that comment on their wall, But I know they'll see a message that's sent through another medium, even though it's through Facebook that I got prompted. When a colleague is launching a book, I join their launch team and I make time to write an Amazon review. And then I share that review on social media to give their book a boost and take a photo of it if I bought the hard copy. I'm in the process of designing greeting cards for my business so I can more easily send out handwritten notes for thank yous, birthdays, congratulatory notes, and when I hear life is going kind of hard. The common denominator in these scenarios, I make an effort to send a message through a medium that's different than what triggered the idea to send a message in the first place. Your challenge this week, when LinkedIn or Facebook informs you about something going on in a friend's life, take a moment to reach out one-on-one. Avoid using messages that are auto-generated or generic. Don't forget that your cell phone makes calls. I got a voicemail on my birthday from friends that were across the country together. They sang happy birthday on that voicemail, and it totally made my day. Make a little effort, and your message will be noticed and appreciated. Try this, and let me know how it goes. Now, on to this week's show. Today's guest has dedicated his life to the idea that escapism is one of the single most important elements of what makes us human. As an award-winning veteran of the music industry, His expertise ranges from being a drummer and producer to an artist development and label founder. In his groundbreaking music tech consulting business, he worked with Aerosmith, The Stones, Ringo Starr, Elton John, and even Sting. He's the author of three books, the founder of Audio One and the CEO of Frangioni Media and All Access IDA. He recently became the publisher of Modern Drummer Magazine, the world's number one drumming publication. Please join me in welcoming David Frangioni. Thank you. Great to be here, Robbie. David, thank you so much for joining us from your office in Miami, Florida. 
As you know, this is a show about building strong connections, strong networks, and that the context of this conversation is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Well, uh, I'll answer the second question first. Um, I realized I had the skills to lead at a pretty young age because I was always taking the initiative um, of getting things done and pulling together all of the elements that that required. And so it kind of started with that. And, and as an example, like when I was 12 and 13 years old, I'd already been drumming uh, since I was two and studying seriously uh, private lessons and practicing since I was eight. So by 12 and 13, I was actually out there gigging and, um, and I quickly realized like, oh, I'm not gigging enough. So I started putting together my own band and started looking for places where the band could play. And I mean, we played, when I was 15 years old, we played Town Day in my town. Like I would play anywhere. Like there's a crowd, I want to play. You need music, I got it. And so it was just, I was so driven by that. And, um, and so it just came naturally that, that I couldn't sit on the sidelines and say, using the drumming example from that period, I couldn't sit on the sidelines and say, I'm going to, you know, I'm here ready. When you need a drummer, call me, I'll go out and I'll drum. Like I had to put the whole picture together and, and get to the point where from the idea to the implementation and actually playing the gig and then finishing the gig, getting paid for the gig, getting the equipment off the stage, back to the rehearsal, you know, like that whole process uh, just came very naturally to me. And, um, and then I realized that I was leading and that I liked to lead. Um, probably just because of having the control of knowing that everything was going to turn out as much as I could control a certain way. And then I started to study and learn from people who were great leaders, uh, both through books and mentors, so I could really refine being a leader and take the raw, you know, talent and energy that I had towards it and, and you know, really, uh, you know, improve it. Yeah, it sounds like there's, there was sort of the difference between talent and skill, you have the raw talent, but then you, you did that uh, work to learn to really develop a skill around it. Um, so and, and it also sounds like the, the leadership is really about getting things done, uh, you know, knowing how to put all the pieces together, bring people together, not just waiting on the sidelines. As you grew, do you feel like your definition of that has shifted and changed over your career? Um, well, it's been much more refined, but the definition of um, taking charge and um, and being being responsible, taking responsibility for all of the steps and being what you want to see in the rest of the team, right? So it's like it's a talk is cheap kind of mentality, and and I think the combination and to bottom line it would be be hands on and be who you want your team to be. And yeah. those, if you can really get what I just said and apply it and, and look at the steps you're taking and why things fail, because failure is a great lesson. And when things are really going sideways, you know, you solve it first and foremost, but then the next thing that any smart person should do, and certainly a leader, is assess it. And, and, and if you find that there's things constantly going sideways, especially in the same area, 
then it's likely that it's your leadership skill that really needs the improvement before you're going to see the improvement down the line. And then, of course, the problem will go away. So I think that's really, those are the two key things, is hands-on and be the leader and the person and the worker that you want your team to be. So you're making me actually think of a, of a long time ago memory, which I don't think I've talked about in this show, but there was a, a time when I was working a lot of restaurant jobs in college and I left one restaurant job and I was trying to find another and I stopped at a Taco Bell and I just really needed a job and they were hiring and I didn't really want to work fast food, but I, I filled the application and they said, well, when are you available? And I said, I don't know, nights, weekends, whatever. I don't care. Basically, I was hired and I had three days to try to find another another opportunity and I didn't. So. I start working three days later, they make me shift manager, <laughs> you know, cause you show up, right. And you, you just, you show up when you're present. Then I'm like, well, I'm not going to just stand around on Friday and Saturday night. So my shift, we did all the cleaning. Um, but we did all the cleaning because I started it. You know, I was in there doing all the work that needed to be done rotating people. So they felt like they had different responsibilities throughout the night, checking in with people, nurturing people. I wasn't the funnest boss, but I was super fair and people respected that. And it's because I was just as willing to roll up my sleeves and get into the muck as I was to tell anyone else to do it. And you're right, like people stepped up to the occasion and we got more, I mean, the busiest nights of the week and we got more sort of house cleaning done than the rest of the week when it's super quiet, right? So uh, I, I think you're right. If you're just pointing fingers and telling people what to do, people tend to not wanna like follow you if they don't think that you've done the work yourself. And it doesn't get done. You know, so, you know, and if it does get done, it's done half-baked. Um, and, you know, it's, it's setting, it's exactly what you just said in, in that without a doubt, you're setting the example. Um, I've had people tell me many times over my 30-plus year career, um, David, you know, you, you're a slave driver um, and, you know, you really, you know, you really push us to the max, but you never ask us to do anything that you're not already doing. So like, you know, I, I can't say I like it, but I can certainly respect it and understand it. So even in the most extreme examples like that one, people see that, you know, you're not just barking orders and setting a standard that you don't adhere to. You're actually being the standard. And you're outworking them really in, in how you're leading and how you're actually getting the work done. But yet, you know, we've got to delegate. We've got to have good people on our team. They've got to be treated right. Um, so there's a lot of layers to the leadership. But if you want to really understand what the, the, some of the foundational components are like we're talking about, it's the Taco Bell example. It's a great example where you're being the leader and the worker that you want people to be. Now, as we get into more uh, high-level business uh, leadership you know, elements and, and you get into larger scale companies and, and, uh, and leadership roles, then the, the high-level executives that you have, you, know, you're, 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 you can't oversee every little thing and, and be the same kind of worker and those things, but you can, in your role at your level, work as hard as as you expect from your team and do your role as well and so it's still the same principle but yet we could be talking about the ceo of disney right yeah. we could be talking yeah. about the ceo of general electric you know so it it follows all of the different paths it just looks a little different 
So another random question for you, from what you were saying about how you got started drumming at two years old, and by eight, you were taking lessons, by 12, 13, you started gigging, and 15, you were organizing your own stuff. Have you heard of a kid named Jonas? So Jonas Rocks, I think it might even be JonasRocks.com. He's this little kid. I started watching I have, him. I have heard of him. At yes. like four years old, he was, he was drumming and self-taught. I'm long before YouTube, but I, I know, know what you're saying. I like his old, I like his, I mean, he's probably like nine or 10 now. I actually love his older stuff. It's not as <laughs> refined, but he's just so into it. Um, and I love that someone saw that in you and developed that because, you know, this, this kid, Jonas, his parents aren't music, musical. They weren't connected to that industry or anything like that, um, but they saw something in him. So obviously someone saw your innate talent and gave you opportunities to develop it. And now and it led to this. My parents. I mean, and I don't even know if they saw talent, but they saw uh, escapism. They saw a kid in trauma and a family in trauma because no one, you know, I don't know if we've shared this already, but um, at two, I was diagnosed with retinoblastoma, which is cancer of the eye. And they had to remove my right eye. So I, I've never, I don't have any frame of reference of what it's like to see out of two eyes and have peripheral vision, 3D, et cetera. And, um, and so it was a blessing really to have, to not have lost it, so to speak, because I never really had it. But the trauma of going through cancer, almost dying, losing your eye, having your eyelid half shut for part of my early life, and the, the torment that that comes with from kids, et cetera, and my family being very loving and supportive and they couldn't have children for a long time and then they have my brother and me and then I almost died through this cancer. And it's like the, the amount of trauma put into this four-person Italian family that just wanted a family uh, and now all of a sudden, you know, we're going to Ocularis to fit an eye in my socket uh, to, so that, you know, I can look at least partly normal. Um, that was so traumatic and they wanted and loved me through it so much and they just wanted to nurture me and we had drums around the house before the cancer and I beat the hell out of them and then uh, you know they were paper-headed little toy drum kits and my parents said okay well uh, he likes the drums you know and how and where they came from I don't know and then by eight they saw that I was playing on phone books and tabletops and anywhere I could could hit and they said, you know, well, let's try some private lessons. And we they didn't have any money really, but they scraped together enough for a used drum kit and they scraped together enough for lessons. Actually, the lessons came first. They said, if you religiously practice, even on a tabletop and a little pad, then you'll someday get a drum kit. So I actually took lessons for the drum set for a year without a drum set and would just play on tabletops and different timbre surfaces to emulate what a drum set would be like. And, um, and that was, so that kind of love and support, I mean, that's, that's a blessing. I mean, yeah, so many, I meet so many people that are on their own at eight or nine or in, you know, families that are, that don't have that, that nurturing and that love. So it wasn't even that they saw talent. It was that they saw, uh, you know, uh, uh, their son, uh, have an interest that relieved the trauma and nurtured my spirit and soul. And they fed that in this really positive way that ended up turning into, you know, just an incredible life. And this explains actually the introduction that says that you believe that escapism is one of the single most important elements of what makes us human. Clearly from this early, early 
memories that you have, even, even before you have memories, actually, other people telling you the story of what you did and what happened and, and how it all started. And seeing um, pictures. I, cause those, pictures. I have actual pictures of me going through yeah. the drums too. That's so cool. It's so amazing. great. Yeah. So at what point after 15, did you, you know, you, you gigging and then at some point you decide there's more to this than just being the performer that, that there's a producer role or there's a talent role of like nurturing other people's talent and developing other people. There's a whole business side to this, this music industry. When did you shift and realize there was a role for you in that as well? Well, around 17 years old. Um, waited until 17. Yeah, I know. I know. I was a late bloomer. <laughs> another blessing though, Robbie, another blessing because uh, you know, it's all in hindsight that you can really take note of what kind of life you've truly had, you know, because when you're actually racing the race, uh, you know, you're not really recapping like, oh, you know, lane turn three, you know, that was a really good move. Like you're just trying to win the race, right? So when you finally can look back, it's pretty amazing. Um, and, and another huge blessing that I was able to start so young and be so focused and so into everything that I was doing at whatever point I was doing it, that everything became cumulative. So to answer your question, as I'm on my quest to be the world's greatest drummer, I'm gigging like crazy. I'm practicing. I'm studying with some of the greatest drummers in the world, Joe Morello, Alan Dawson, Louis Belson. I mean, these are the best of the best, uh, none of whom are with us any longer, but they were even in their prime then as older gentlemen. And um, so I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm all in. And I'm learning now without even realizing it, what it's like to be a professional musician. Even though I'm still going to school uh, and I'm, I'm a part-time musician by definition, but I'm playing so much and I'm learning from these greats who are not only professional musicians, but legends. And I'm, I'm asking them questions and I'm learning and I'm realizing all kinds of different things from the lifestyle that a drummer has, um, which, you know, you're touring a lot, and you're not home much, and, um, you know, you have to put up with a lot of things that are not, you know, normal, everyday kind of things that people uh, experience, and certainly my parents had never experienced because they're tradition, they were traditional blue-collar, you know, hard-working uh, people, and so my frame of reference was now all new, like, oh, wow, I come from this really amazing home. My dad's home at the same time every day. My mom's home at the same time every day. And now I'm like at night, I'm like with these crazy musicians that are all over the map. So I'm realizing lifestyle and I'm also realizing dynamics because you now I'm starting to see because I'm in band after band and I'm growing and evolving and getting into better bands and having multiple bands and, you know, one's a jazz band, one's a rock band. And I'm realizing, wait a second if the lead singer quits, I'm done. Like this thing is over. I could be the, think I'm the best drummer anywhere that can be found, but we, I start over. So all of these things are subconsciously like really affecting like, wow, my passion is music, but I don't know if this is what I, you know, how I want to live, even though it's my calling. And so I'm still doing it full on. And I find in the quest for doing it full on, because now we're in the 80s, electronics are starting to become a part of music. And I'm, I'm finding electronics through my quest for being a better drummer. And I'm like, well, I'm listening to these records, I'm playing these bands, I play doom chak, doom doom chak, and it sounds horrible, and I listen to the same groove on a record, and it sounds like doom, 
it sounds great. And it's like in the music and it fills the space. And I'm like, what? And so I'm, I'm learning, well, that's electronics. Like the guy's hitting the bass drum and the snare drum, but there's all another sound being generated electronically. And I was so fascinated. So I found what was going on by reading and researching and going to music stores and going to other gigs, even bands I didn't like, but I listened, the drum sounded really great. And I was like, okay. And I would go to the drummer after the gig or in between sets, like, Hey, what are you doing? And they were all very helpful. Like, Oh yeah. Well, I'm triggering this. I'm doing that. Well, the next thing, you know, I'm so immersed in technology that it goes way past the drums. And within two years, I can build a studio for somebody. And I'm doing MIDI consulting, M-I-D-I, Musical Instrument Digital Interface, which is the language of how all this technology actually works and communicates. And I, by the time I'm 19, I have 1-800-345-MIDI, and I'm a full-blown, full-time MIDI consulting. I'm still gigging. But uh, the, the transition is occurring that will change and define my life forever, which is I'm not going to be a full-time drummer, but all that I've learned about drumming and music, both from a business and actual music playing side, is so valuable and so insightful. I can read music, no problem. I can play music. I can, I can book a band, I can put a band together, I can move a band logistically, I can promote a band, like all of these different things. And I found that my love of technology was even greater than my love of being a drummer. And now I have, I thought I was going to have a more normal life. That couldn't have been further from the truth, by the way, but, but it didn't require me to be on the road 300 days a year. Uh, so that's good. But it ended up being this incredible journey that started um, as my next chapter because I now had a consulting business, which ended up building into Audio One, which is one of the largest businesses of its kind to this day uh, of music technology uh, in building recording studios, uh, home theaters, and smart home systems at a very high level. Uh, and then, of course, Frangioni Media is the pro side of that. So we'll do like houses of worship and, um, you know, entire facilities and, you know, schools. And so I was able to learn from that foundation and grow it from a lot of hands-on experience and a lot of um, actually studying. And then I, when I started, I started working with Aerosmith when I was around 20 um, through my MIDI consulting, they contact one of the guys in the band, Tom Hamilton, the bass player contacted me and said, Hey, I have a MIDI rig and I'd song right with it. And can you come and help me with it? We ended up hitting it off really well. And I helped him a lot. And, um, I was blown away. I had worked with a member of Aerosmith and now I'm starting to get some credit. So even before Tom, I was like, I had a gig with Elton John and I had a gig with, you know, uh, Debbie Gibson and like things were starting to, to happen on a much bigger scale. Um, but Aerosmith, when that, what happened when Tom said, you know, uh, I'd like you to help me. And then that we ended up collaborating and stuff. Then he calls me one day and says, you know, I'm really happy with everything that we're doing together. Um, and I think, you know, the band is working on this record pump. Now we're in 1989 and he says, you know, I think maybe you could help them. You know, I'm not offering you a job or a gig, but I'm offering you an opportunity to come in and meet the guys and see if you can help them. I went in there the first day. I never left. Wow. I mean, the, I just have to interject here because 
Um, I have goosebumps. <laughs> I have to say, um, the trajectory was so fast, but you were steering. I did the work. You were steering the ship. You're absolutely right. It was fast, but I did the work. I yeah. was steering the ship. You were steering the ship. You were finding the next thing. I also love the idea that that MIDI became this thing that everyone was trying to figure out. And because you geeked out on it for your own reasons, you became this invaluable consultant because you were a little ahead. I mean, you might have been only a chapter ahead <laughs> of a lot of people, but you just were willing to put yourself out there and figure it out. And it was becoming right. an incredibly important component in, in the work. And people, everyone suddenly realized they had to figure it out. And you were like, yeah, I'm here. I've already, I've already done these steps. Let me just, I'll work with you. I'll get you a little further. And, you know, that you were willing to put yourself out there at a very young age. I mean, such self-assuredness about your own capacity that probably goes back to your parents and how they raised you to like be who you were. Well, you're, first of all, thank you. And, and you're absolutely right in, um, you know, you really got it. Um, that's exactly what happened. It's, it's bizarre that I was self-assured and I'm not even sure how self-assured I was, but I acted self-assured. Um, and, you know, coming from a kid that has one eye that looks different, um, doesn't, you know, aren't the foundational building blocks of confidence, but somehow, uh, you know, I was able to just kind of just put my head down and, and go right up the middle. And, and you're right. And, and a great example uh, to your point of putting myself out there is when I started my consulting business, um, I went to a gentleman named Gene Jolly, who is an, a music um, instrument legend. Uh, he is a music instrument retail legend. And he ran a store called EU Wurlitzer at the time, which in the 80s to have five stores in one city, Boston, where I'm from, that was a big deal. Like we, we didn't have guitar centers and, you know, Target and all these different things. So I went to him and he'd seen me around the store a lot, right? Because that's that, what better education than the keyboard department of a huge music store. Like every day they have something new and I just buried my head in it. And, um, and I said, Gene, um, I want to, I want you to hire me and I want you to hire me as your MIDI, your MIDI, your in-house MIDI guy. And he goes, David, I took the Dale Carnegie course too. And you are not going to work for anybody. And I couldn't believe it. I was so like, what? How's this guy know? And he said, but I'm going to bring you in as a, as a consultant. I'm going to have my store promote you and give you clients or at least the opportunity to get clients. And that was a game changer. So I made up posters. I did exactly what he told me to do, which is a great lesson, by the way, because he was a great leader but he still needed me to do my part. So he didn't do it for me. He didn't say, I'll put up the posters. I'll do this. I'll do that. And like you just show up when they call you. He said, look, I'll give you the, the environment and I'll tell my managers that you're with me and that you're on board because this man, Gene Jolly, ran the show, but you got to do your part. And so I went out there. I made posters. I, you know, I, and again, at this point, I took what I learned about graphic design when I hung posters for my bands and I would go to all the cars in the parking lot of the guys that actually had a crowd and I put it on everybody's windshield wipers. Like I took that same experience and said, okay, now I need a poster that looks a lot better than my flyer. And so I found a graphic designer, like which at that time was a big deal. And anyway, long story short, all the stores had my posters had my phone number, 1-800-345-MIDI, had my business cards in a little holder at the bottom of the poster, and I'd go and I'd replenish them every week. And people were calling me, and every person that called needed something different. And every person that called had not only had a different rig, 
but nobody had anything I had ever used before. And at the end of two years, and this is not an exaggeration or some kind of hyperbole, at the end of two years of doing that consulting, I had 100% retention. Not one client said to me, I'm not going to pay you. I'm not happy with what you just helped me with. The opposite. Every client was happy. And here I am, and this is the long-winded end to your point that I'm uh, you know, really, I'm blown away that you you got this so fast is that um, I did put myself out there. I don't even think I realized how much I was putting myself out there. But you show up charging somebody in 1987 or $6, $50 an hour and say to them, you know, when I leave, you're going to be better off than before I got here. And I don't care how rich they were or how smart they were or whatever – they were serious about like, hey, how, what's the value this guy's bringing me? And every single client at the end of it usually booked another consultation. So that's how I learned. Yeah, I mean, it, it is incredible. And I think there is a naiveness to, to youth uh, willing to put yourself out there. I once stepped into a, a statewide role as part of a national campaign. And at the end of the year, my supervisor basically said, I would never have taken that gig. <laughs> yep. Well, look at the Taco Bell example. You apply for a job and they give you a better one. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, and with that comes things. I mean, where was the, where, I, don't, I didn't hear in your story, like, where's the two-week training introduction to like, okay, no, so no, no. this is what we expect. Here's the manual. Read it top to bottom. And they were like, here are the, the keys. Here's the current guy managing. He's going to train you. Like that's not life, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so clearly you face a lot of challenges, but it sounds like every challenge, if I'm reading this right, every challenge you met through some form of relationships that every point in your career where you were not quite sure what to do, you did a combination of, of reading, of learning on your own, but yes. seeking out expert counsel and that you had, had probably after a while less nerves about asking for help from expert counsel because so many great people had already helped you. So it becomes almost just not easy, but, um, just part of your repertoire that if you want to know something, you're going to go to the people who know it. You're not going to hesitate and say, well, they don't want to talk to me. What do I know? I'm just, I'm just a little kid. You know, you're like, no, no, no. I, I, these other people were helpful. So there's an abundance mindset that it sounds like sets in too, that you believe that if you need something, it's going to come to you when you need it. Like you, you're like you said, you for two years, you're working on, on rigs that you've never seen, but you're like, I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to give them the hundred percent that they expect. And I did. Yeah. So, okay. So let's move to, it is an abundance mentality that is absolutely profoundly on point. And I can't even, I have, I must've gotten it from, you know, in being born with whatever you're born with and how you, you grow up. And my parents um, were so loving and nurturing and you see two people who love you that much and would do anything for you and have so limited means they can't buy you anything, so mm, to speak. And we right. can't like go on fancy vacations. And we had one crappy car that we all, you know, that they shared. My mom used to have to take the bus and two trains to get to work each way. She was never late in 25 years. Um, and this is in Boston, snow and sleet and everything else. So my point is that I'm, I'm looking at these people that how could there be that much abundance when we barely had anything, but we had love, we had support, we had words, uh, we, and I watched them in action, how they lived their life. They walked 
the walk. They didn't say, David, work hard and be the best. They worked hard and were the best. Mm -hmm. And so like that became like the standard, like by default. And I mean, from the time I was 13, I didn't take a day off until I was 50. Wow. That was my, that was my work ethic and is my work ethic. So, yeah. you know, it's not for everybody. I could see it to be intense to work for you. <laughs> I could see that, but you, you know, you're doing the work and expect others to join you. So let's, let's move a little bit to current day. Um, you have had a vast, amazing number of experiences in your career, 30 plus years. So how are you nurturing those relationships that you've developed over all that time? You know, what, like, how do you stay in touch with people um, that you maybe work with five, 10, 15 years ago? Um, do you have any kind of habits around that? Something that helps you, you know, nurture those connections, deepen those connections? Well, I can get better at that, you know, because that's something that you never, you, you never have enough. When you build up um, that much of a clientele and a network, um, and you're right. I have, you know, been able to build a, a great network. Um, there's never enough time because you could, I could spend every day reaching out to people and then what, you know, at what point do you actually work and, and have, and, you know, have a family and have a, you know, do all the things that you want to do and, and, and a part of your life. So, you know, I've, I, I find that I just integrate, um, you know, communication in a way that, uh, is based around, you know, what I'm doing at the time, who I consider my closest friends and allies, who I find interesting, would like to keep touching base with. Um, it's a myriad of different, you know, ideas behind staying in touch. I don't have any kind of fancy automated system that sends people emails on a certain day or anything like that. It's, it's still very personable um, and very much based in the now. Um, there are clients I've lost touch with um, some, you know, when you're dealing with a lot of famous people, as I've had a blessing to deal with, uh, you know, phone numbers change, assistants change, wives and husbands change, like, you know, and all of a sudden you change <laughs> and, you know, you're not in touch with them anymore. And sometimes you get a call out of the blue and sometimes they're just a client that you had for a period of time. And that's how it was meant to be. Fortunately, most of my clients, um, are still with me and we do still stay in touch. And, uh, I just, you know, I focus on serving and the rest works itself out, you know, as opposed to, to I, yes, you could say I hustle and I work really hard and I do both of those things, but it's really in the pursuit of finding people who need me as to serve, you know, it's, it's really, that's, I love what I do and I want to do it for as many people that need it done. And I want to exceed their expectations and I want to take, and I do take everything that I've learned cumulatively and apply it. So my projects keep getting better, right? Mm. Cause now you have, you know, at first you have one project, your second project's a little better than the first cause you'd learn things. And you know, when you can multiply that by thousands uh, and I certainly have my 10,000 hours in, in various things, not just one thing um, that you can really bring value. So are you uh, now, as a, you know, I love that this idea that serving, are you also a mentor to others in the way that people had mentored you? Is that absolutely, has that 100%. now shifted in your career? Like you're in that new role? Yes. And that's what all access IDA, which the IDA is inspire and develop artists. That's what the acronym stands for. So I'm very much a mentor. I make a living being a mentor, uh, doing keynotes and speeches and, and all, you know, different talks and, 
I'm appearing in New York on September 28th, as an example, doing a, a conference that I'm speaking at. And, you know, there's, um, you know, all kinds of different, uh, you know, outlets for that. And I love mentoring. Um, and the more a student has the interest and the desire that I've had in my, in my life, the more I'm energized by mentoring them. So I'll mentor people even who need a lot of fuel kind of put in the tank, but it's really exciting when you meet like-minded people that just need the experience from you and the guidance, but they, but they have the energy and they have the desire. So that's really exciting. Yeah. And to find someone who had this drive that you had at a young age and, and give them have. direction. Yeah. Still have had it, have it. We'll never yeah. lose it. Yeah. Well, cause you know, there's a difference between, um, you know, taking action, and, and having the right direction. I think that a lot of people take action, but they, they don't always have the right focus. And so having someone to mentor you when you were younger and for you to mentor others now gives them the direction to put the energy behind. So then they're actually moving in the right direction. Well, you're, you're right. And, and I have a saying um, that uh, I got from somebody, which is, um, if you want to know the road ahead, ask those who are coming back. And so, you know, because I've been back and forth so many times, somebody now can come to me and I'll be able to say, okay, when you get to that third left and it looks like that's the way to go because the sun's always on that road, actually take a right on the dark road uh, that the sun doesn't, this, there's a lot of trees, so you don't see sun there, but it's going to be twice as fast. And this is what you have to be prepared for when you go down it. And like all of those, those, what you could say are little things are huge. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, being able to, to, to take the energy and intent and goals that someone has and the work that they're willing to do for it and give them the guidance and the path that is going to be really, really short. It's not going to be any less deep. Mm -hmm. It's just going to be a lot more efficient. Mm. And that's to me, the, the real power of mentoring. David, the other thing I'm, I'm getting from our conversation is that while a lot has changed technology-wise in the industry that you're in, that people haven't. The people no. part are still people. And that what, all the things you learned early on, you mentioned Dale Carnegie, all of that still applies, which is, which is actually in some ways so fascinating, you know, that the wisdom, you know, it, it, it hasn't changed. Um, People think that because we have all these new ways of communicating, the faster pace, people still really appreciate the, the little things, the, the small touch, the effort, the personalization, um, being remembered, having their name remembered. I mean, there, right? There's like so much that. <laughs> oh, you've read the book too and studied it. I love <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. No, you're yeah. right though, because we're all humans, right? So the, the fact is that as long as we're all humans and it's not a planet full of robots, uh, and AI and machines that those principles will never go away because they really, they really help you get in touch with who you are, the kind of person you want to be, and they give you the skill set to actually become it. You have to do the work, but the information's there for you to then have the same kind of guidance we're talking about. Uh, and when we talked about Gene Jolly earlier, he went to the courses. He actually went and did like the studies, which didn't just read all the books and at the time watch VHS videos and whatever, but actually went firsthand. And that's where I first learned about live seminars was that he said, he's, you know, hey, I'm a 
Dale Carnegie graduate. I'm like, whoa, what, what, where do you get a certificate? I read all the books. Where's my certificate? He's like, no, no, no. You have to go to the classes. I'm like, classes? What? And there's no internet. You're not www nothing. You like find like a phone book, which for everybody who needs to know what that is, it's a actually a Google on paper. And so you'd look on the you look on the phone book and you'd be like, what, where's Dale Carney? And like, or then, you know, wasn't there. You have to ask somebody You finally find a phone number. I mean, there's a lot of work to do all those things, but the skills that it gives you, you're absolutely right. These are timeless skills. They're not based on trends. Yes. They're going to continue to be more and more refined as, as the, as you know, the human mind and the, the brilliant people studying these things and learning about how to cope with the challenges of life and then channel that back into effective and, uh, and nurturing communication. That's always developing. So there's always new things that are, you know, Dale Carnegie was in the thirties, right? So, but the principles and the concept and the ideas that as humans, we all have basic needs. We all have respect that is due to us and that should be in the communication and, and et cetera, et cetera, on Dale Carnegie's principles they'll always apply. Yeah, yeah. So David, we're getting to the end of this. Uh, uh, thank you for that. And we're getting to the end of this interview. And I have a favorite question I'd love to ask, which is if we're reconnecting a year from now, which I, I really hope we stay in touch, and we're celebrating all of your successes from the previous year, what, what are we going to be celebrating? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Um, well, I'm, I'm really excited about Modern Drummer Magazine. Uh, it's the number one drum magazine in the world. It was founded by Ron Spagnardi over 40 years ago. He's no longer with us. He passed away in the early 2000s. And, um, and the magazine um, came to me uh, this year and, and asked me to, um, you know, be its publisher. And that's something that is a huge undertaking and certainly takes all of the experience that I've learned from these different businesses and industry sectors and of course, the love of drumming from, you know, literally my whole life. And it really fuses them. And there's a lot of work that we have to do uh, to grow the magazine and take it from the number one drumming magazine to the number one drumming resource in the world. Because there was no internet when Ron started. There was no email. There was no social media, etc. And although Modern Drummer has strongholds in those areas now, it's got a lot of uh, evolving development that we're working on. So that's, we're going to be celebrating Modern Drummer. We're going to be celebrating Frangioni Media's growth because my focus has been entirely on in the, in the technology integration side of things. It's been entirely Audio One. And now it's Audio One and Frangioni Media. It's both. I brought in uh, a partner to Audio One who's the, the uh, majority partner now, Todd Hansen. He's a great CEO. And, um, and so he's really steering the ship on Audio One so I can focus on the Frangioni media side of things, which is really where, you know, of all my heart and soul, I love the studios and the, the more, what we'll say, commercial and artist-driven side of things. And he loves the home side of things. So it's a great, great team. Um, and we'll be celebrating my books because I'm really proud of Crash, the World's Greatest Drum Kits and Clint Eastwood Icon. And um, there's a lot of people we can still reach to get those books out there and have people enjoy them. Our feedback's been phenomenal. Um, and um, I'm really excited that people 
you know, or responding to it. And it's part of my foundation, Frangioni Foundation. So I think that when we look a year from now, we'll be serving more people with Frangioni Foundation. We'll have a, a bigger footprint on how we're affecting children and through music and drumming and faith. All Access IDA will have even more success stories from the artists that we're mentoring. And, uh, you know, as long as my health's there, life will be good. Wow, it's quite the enterprise you have created and developed around you. And it's a, what a way to bring all your gifts to, to the forefront to share with the world. Uh, how can people find you and follow your work? Uh, well, my social media is all David Frangioni. And uh, F-R-A-N-G-I-O-N-I, because uh, everybody puts an E on the end, but there's actually an I. And, um, and audio-one.com is the website for Audio One. Frangioni, davidjfrangioni.com is my website. And so I'm pretty easy to find. Awesome. We will have all those links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. David, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Robbie. Thank you for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed that interview with David. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share it resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 170. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources for today's show, as well as over 170 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. Right now, I'm in the midst of booking speaking engagements for next year. My 2020 goal is 50 speaking engagements. Who do you know that would benefit from my experience? In particular, I help associations build lifelong members by creating welcoming and inclusive first-timer experiences. Are you in an association? Great. I'd welcome an introduction. If you enjoy this episode with David, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review in Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance, and I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on the way to becoming a successful leader. Until then, have an awesome week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.